0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen Tosley.
1: And my name is Jose Sanchez.
0: And today we have Professor Wayne Osgood on the podcast to talk with us about his career as a criminologist, his work on delinquency, and his thoughts about the field.
1: Great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Wayne. So just a quick introduction for Wayne. He's a criminologist, spent the largest share of his career at Pennsylvania State University, University Park, which he joined in 1996 and retired from in 2016. His research has focused on peers and delinquency, time use and offending crime and the life course, and evaluating programs to prevent and reduce delinquency. From 2012 through 2017, he served as the lead editor of the journal Criminology. And just last month, he received the American Society of Criminology's Top Award for Research in Criminology at Sutherland Award. So thank you again, Wayne, for joining us. We just talked about how you heard this for a full week,
2: but congratulations again. Well, thanks so much. It was an honor I never expected and really enjoyed. And thanks for asking me to be on the podcast with you.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us. So for today's episode, we're going to start at the beginning of Wayne's career as a criminologist and ask him about really what got him into the field. Then we'll move into talking about his contributions to research on delinquency and peers And we'll wrap up by kind of looking back and reflecting on his career to get his thoughts on the discipline and criminology moving forward. So with that, Jose, why don't you get us started?
1: Sure. So like Jen mentioned, we're going to go ahead and start at the beginning of your career. And as we were actually prepping for this episode, I started to realize that you and I have, at least at this point in our careers, we have moved through the same geographic locations. You did your Mm -hmm. undergrad at UCLA. I went to Cal State LA. So we're both in the LA area. You actually got your PhD in psychology at CU Boulder. You know, I'm in the sociology department, but I'm also at CU Boulder. So I'm hoping that this is a sign from the universe that my career will end up as good as yours. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. Sure.
2: I wish you the best with it.
1: So going into college, did you have any idea of what you wanted to do
2: with your life career-wise? just the vaguest. I'd actually been really good in science and math as a high school student and thought I'd be an engineer. But by the time I finished high school, my favorite part of life was sitting around with my buddies trying to solve the great social problems of the day and arguing about, you know, which approaches would be best. And, you know, I looked at the college catalog for what I just signed up for. It was like hardly any courses other than science if I was going to be an engineer. I just said, oh, heck with that, and declared undeclared and took lots of philosophy and psychology and sociology. And then it took me a couple of years to settle down into psychology, I think, because probably that's what came easiest for me. It was a little more kind of experimental and quantitative that easily with my previous inclinations. But I didn't really get into studying crime at all at that point or until much later it was more like just all this social science stuff is gonna, that's the way to solve the world problem, kind of writ large and in general. And I ended up going into grad school in social psychology, by the route I think is particularly popular, getting to be senior and thinking, oh my God, what am I gonna do next? And talking to professors who said, you know, you got their credentials, you can get into grad school and they'll actually pay you to be there, which was a great shock at the time. Anyway, in grad school, I was in psychology studying social psychology and really interested in pretty arcane, abstract sort of topics that by the time I finished my degree, I couldn't remember why I thought they were supposed to be interesting. Because whenever I talked to anybody else about them, they sounded boring, come out of my own mouth, you know, the abstractions about the way people think about other people and how that's supposed to influence their own behavior. And it was a long ways from those social problems that struck me as interesting when I started. So I went in and finished the degree, but the job market was pretty bad at that point. It was, my timing was, you know, I'm about a third of the way through the baby boom, timing my birth wise. And so I finished my PhD right about the point that colleges and universities were realizing that they were about to have smaller and smaller, you know, incoming cohorts. There weren't the great job prospects. What am I going to do? And fortunately, Dell Elliott's research group had lots going on at that point. They were about to launch the National Youth Survey, and I landed a job with them. Frank Dunford, not a name everybody knows, but a great guy, hired me to be a research associate with the National Evaluation of Juvenile Diversion Programs. And I was just so hungry for a chance to use the skills I had and something that was a problem that makes sense and I could explain it to my mother and my friends. That, that sounded pretty darn good. And it, you know, it was a full-time job. I was traveling around the country visiting sites these programs were implemented. I was learning a lot about the justice system by going in and trying to talk. Well, I was, personally, I wasn't lead on things, so I wasn't the main person to have to do the convincing, but getting in on all these conversations to talk, police departments and juvenile courts and getting involved in research and worked really well for me to get my feet wet in that field. And just learn real intensely.
0: So it sounds kind of like trial and error in a way, getting into criminology as a discipline, yep. landing yep. the right position to really spike those interests that you had originally.
2: Exactly, right. And it was a kind of situation, and I think a lot of research jobs are like this, that it could have been just a job, you know, go here and do that, you know, write up these reports, do these data analyses. But I was eager enough to want to, and will make my mark and get good at this and learn. I felt pretty much an outsider to criminology at that point because I was, I mean, I didn't really much about it. I had pretty good generic skills for social science, you know, conducting surveys and all kinds of stuff, but I had a lot to learn about the topic. So it was a great chance to sort of dig in and make some progress there.
0: Kind of building off of that, you know, early on in your career, it looks like you moved around quite a bit. You know, you Mm -hmm. just mentioned working at the Institute of Behavioral Science with Del Elliott, who we've had on the podcast on an episode. And then you also worked at the Institute of Social Research at the University of Michigan as an adjunct professor in sociology and psychology, and then you became the director of the follow-up research at Father Flanagan's (laughs) Boys Home (laughs) before, you know, making your way to being an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska Lincoln, and then moving on to Penn State, where you stayed for about 20 years before retiring. You've started to kind of talk about your experiences as a researcher at these different institutions, but can you tell us a little bit more about that? And then what made yeah. you decide to move into academia as a professor and not just as a researcher?
2: Yeah, there's a lot to that. You know, it's a pretty good yeah. chunk of life in there and it was love that took me to Institute of Social Research because my first wife, Jan Jacobs, was uh, a research assistant on our team at the uh, Institute of Behavioral Sciences. She finished BA in child development at Colorado State and has worked on there and you know, we had a real good relation, working relationship that developed into more. Fortunately, I wasn't her supervisor, so it wasn't able to, do it and that sort of thing. And then, darned if she wasn't saying, "Okay, well, I want to go to grad school too, and human development." So, you know, we had that interesting joint process of figuring out, "Well, how are we gonna do this?" You know, should she try to go in Boulder, and that didn't look too feasible. Applied to a handful of places that looked like there might be chances. For me to find something i applied for a few academic jobs didn't land any of them and michigan you know part i picked michigan i didn't really know the social research but i was looking at just how many researchers that i'd heard of were at various places and the list was enormous for michigan because institute of social research is the biggest and oldest social research institution like that there is so anyway that worked out and i landed a job there and she went to grad school And it was a terrific place to kind of get my chops at being a researcher. It's such a big place that there were, you know, a few dozen people right at my career point, you know, a few years out of grad school. And they're just talks being given three days a week by people on panel study for income dynamics and monitoring the future. And who knows what else is going on there? And there are lots and lots of grad students of various social science programs around. The friendships I developed there and opportunities I stumbled across and I got a whole lot better at what I did. I learned a lot more about being a good social scientist and there were a reasonable number of criminologists there. The adjunct professor things, well, if you're hanging around in a place like that, after a while I say, Wayne, we do research on dual delinquency. We need somebody to cover this course. Can you do that? So, oh yeah, sure. And turns out that was really good for me because those courses I didn't take, you know, when you have to teach them to somebody else, you learn reading things. And that made my work better because then they'd say, oh yeah, this thing we've been working on and getting this paper out from the diversion project, that fits really well with this theory and that theory that I can really strengthen these papers I'm working with. So it was a terrific opportunity, you know, and I've often looked back and thought if I had managed to land an academic assistant professor job right when it came out of grad school, I wasn't the point of my skills that I would have hit the ground running at publishing really good research. You know, just keeping up with the teaching, you know, in some place that was not on the fast track. And Lord knows that's a great kind of job. We got tens of people doing them. But I was much better at doing big time research, basically. That's really hard to learn without having a role in pretty large scale sorts of studies. So, six years at Michigan really helped with that. And then the Michigan one was that my wife landed a job in the psychology department at Lincoln University of Nebraska. And the main project I'd worked on with Marty Gold, not a name that's known too well now, but was back then, that had been the study of peer influence among incarcerated kids in institutions in Michigan. It was really interesting to have a chunk of my career, a lot of my time hanging around the institution, a worthwhile experience. Anyway, I spent only a year working at Boys Town and then a position opened up in Lincoln at the university and decided if I was ever going to make that jump, I couldn't pull around with waiting a few years to do it when the chance was there, you know, given that that's where I was living already. I would take it and that worked out.
1: So we've mentioned this a couple of times in different episodes, but we always try to not get super technical on the podcast because we try to not overwhelm people with like statistics mm-hmm. and models. Oh, yeah. But... I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't talk to you a little bit about your methodological contributions to the field. I remember as a first-year PhD student, a professor suggested to me that a Poisson model would be appropriate for the project that I was working on at the time. And no one had taught me what Poisson was. So I was kind of trying to like, teach it to myself. I was reading all these articles. And then I remember thinking, I wonder if someone's like, written something about Poisson or like in like a crim journal that I can maybe understand a little more. And lo and behold, there's like this Wayne Asgard article on using Poisson regression in criminology. But you've also written papers on item response theory and multilevel modeling. And we don't need to get into the weeds of what all those things are necessarily. What I do want to ask about is sometimes I feel like criminology can get a little behind on some of the methods that maybe other disciplines have been using for a while. Like it seems like. Structure equation modeling is like the new darling in criminology right now. But, <laughs> and I'm sure you know this, psychologists have been using that for quite some time now. What exactly inspired you to maybe write these more
2: methodological pieces for criminology? Yeah, interesting question. It differs across the pieces. Of what particular thing prompted me in each case? But in general, I was kind of like doing it, I was like teaching methods because. People often come to feeling so intimidated, and it's often presented in a way that feels like, oh, you outsiders are never gonna get this. It's not that hard you just have to just step back, say it in a simple way, don't use technical language if you don't have to, and you can really get the point across. And none of these papers were breaking new ground about the methods, except in, you know, maybe here's a way to use it that would be useful. With the Poisson regression, there was a big kind of movement that had been going on for a while toward more and more these nonlinear models like Poisson and logistic and multinomial and all this stuff. And I had a research project, you know, that some collaborators got me in on that had delinquency rate data in small populations and small areas. And the data were just really so far from the assumptions of the usual methods that everything just looked nuts. It was just incredibly noisy, and it was obvious that in the smallest areas, the data were so imprecise that putting them through regular models was just meaningless. And I'd read about Poisson models, and I thought, not I guess I ought to try it, because it sounds like that would be a better fit And I did, and everything, you know, it just worked a lot better. And I don't really do much aggregate analysis. So I had this funny experience of going to my friends that do, George Bridges and Bob Crutchfield and Bob Bursick saying, what should I cite for this? And they say, oh, that sounds cool. I don't know what to cite for that. I wrote a paper sent to Krim that had a 14-page or something like that analysis session explaining the methods. They said, well, we like the paper. You really can't do that. You know, that's just beyond (laughs) the pale. Why don't you send that someplace else? You did a good job explaining it, but it's not going to fit in this paper. So I did, and and it worked out. But I really intended it in that way that, a grad student with the sort of the regular methods first year or so stuff could read it and say, "Oh, okay, this is how this works and why I'd use it and what I'll get." I think that's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important too because I know there's some stuff I'm working on right now, and even with like structural equation modeling, because I really taught myself that method, and then I was like, "I should take a class to make sure I'm actually understanding yeah, right, this," right. but. It was like just equation after equation, trying to understand all of the assumptions behind the method and it's a lot to take in. And so I really appreciate people when they take the time to break it down and like you said, not use the super technical language because it is really helpful to people who have a couple of classes under their belt, but aren't super statistics minded or super savvy in that area. So
2: Yeah. Item response theory stuff, I got started because working with Elliott's group, one of the main things from the National Youth Survey was develop better self-report delinquency seizure, And we, on the diversion project, used all the measures that were developed in the National Youth Survey at the same time, but we had our data earlier and we needed to get analysis going. So as the numbers guy, I had the first job of putting those together and I thought I knew what I was doing. Life teaches them often that you don't when you think you do. In this case, the things that I thought I knew about measurement just didn't help with the form that delinquency comes in, which is incredibly skewed. And I didn't know what to do about it. I can't even remember what we did in those days, but we tried some things that would help, but they were real ad hoc. And so I just had that as a topic in the back of my mind for the next decade and finally came across some things I thought fit better. And that led to the item response theory first paper that I did. And really, that paper is as much about what the heck is this problem we have on our hands that we need to solve is is about here's the great new solution, which is it's a good solution, but it's more technical than most people want to deal with. And one thing we found in in the course of that work was it's probably not really necessary. But I think, you know, the whole process was helpful in, in laying out what you do need for something to be useful and what apparent solutions only make things worse. There are plenty of those.
0: All right. So speaking of contributions, one of the things that you are well known for is your work on unstructured socialization and delinquency. And so we're going to get into a paper on this topic. But before we do that, we just want to take kind of a step back and ask if this has been an area that you've always been interested in and always focused on, or if your research interests within criminology have changed over time.
2: Well, it didn't start until I heard Mark Felson at a criminology meeting talking about this stuff. I'd never heard of it before when I first heard it in criminology. Well, everybody thinks of the 1979 Cohen and Felsen paper is kind of the origin, right? And probably in about 1980, to that range, I heard Mark talking about his work and then a few other, you know, and there were related papers. And I just thought that's a really interesting perspective, right? To focus on the shape of ordinary everyday lives and what that has to do with how much crime happens of different sorts. And so I just had that in mind as a cool thing. And at some point over... Probably would have been two, three, four years later. As part of my work at Michigan, I ended up working for some of my time with the modern during the future group who do the big annual surveys of drug use. And they have questions on tons of more stuff. A lot more people ought to learn about those data and take advantage of them because it's just crazy how many topics that study covers. I mean, like they give questionnaires to something like 15,000 high school seniors every year and 10th graders and eighth graders too. There's six different forms of the questionnaire, two of which have delinquency and each of which has a few hundred items in it. So you can study a lot of good stuff with those data. I noticed that there was this set of questions on how often do you do this? How often do you do that? You know, go to movies, go to church, have dinner with your parents, go out in the evening with your friends. So I just started, did a few analyses with those, just seeing what they look like. And not really sure quite the order of things when I decided to actually get serious about doing some analyses with them, because it was a long time before I actually published that paper. But I'd seen enough to see to know that they were pretty closely related. Some of them were pretty closely related delinquency and drug use, which is the main focus of modern And others weren't. And there was some kind of pattern. It wasn't that obvious what the pattern was. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting was probably most strikingly how much they changed with age because there's a follow-up sample in the future from high school seniors onwards. And many of them changed just a ton after high school. In 1983, the Gottfrieds and Hershey paper, or is it Hershey and, and the age paper anyway, was pretty recent. It was really on a lot of our minds about, hmm, this age stuff we haven't given much attention to and what could be more important. And so I just sort of dug into it from there. And there were other Articles being written, presentations being given relating activities to delinquency, but there didn't seem to be much coherence to how anybody approached it. It was just sort of like, I ask people about how often they do these 15 things and look at all these correlations, right? That led me to doing more specific analyses, a little more depth, really wanting to look at the mediation aspect of it, how much does this explain age trends and how much it does explain gender differences and so on. And also the sense that we badly needed some kind of theory to go with it. And I, I'd come at it from the vaguest of interest in routine activities, but it clearly needed some more substance than that. And it was never on the top of my priority list, though. I mean, I had these research jobs and there were studies we're getting paid to do. So it wasn't really until I was working in academia and then benefited a lot from having the time to figure out what I really wanted to do.
1: Since we're like just run to go on this one and uh, start moving into your paper. And so it was published in 1996 in the American Sociological Review. It's titled Routine Activities and Individual Deviant Behavior. It was authored by our guest Wayne and his colleague, colleagues, Janet Wilson, Patrick O'Malley, Gerald Bachman, and Lloyd Johnston. In the paper, Wayne and his colleagues apply the routine activity theory framework, which is Traditionally, at the macro level, at least how Cohen and Felsen proposed it to an individual level analysis of deviant behavior in late adolescence and young adulthood. To do this, they use data from the Monitoring the Future study, which started in 1975, and at that time was still going on, and focused on high school senior classes. So the first question that when I read this, and I've read this paper a few times, and um, thank you. so what really prompted you, or what was it about routine activity that spoke to you that Made you go, I'm going to take this macro level theory and then bring it down to the micro individual
2: level. Well, it was probably the way to think about that is what does Wayne do and know anything about? And my background and experience was totally about the more individual level or group, you know, individual in relation with others, but not macro and demographic and that sort of thing. So to me, that was part and parcel of making it something that I thought I could have a contribution of. You know, and coming, having sort of learned the field at the feet of Dell and the rest in that group, the task was explaining how much self report delinquency does this person versus that person engage in, right? So it wouldn't have been my contribution to make it if I hadn't done that. So that was part of the challenge was, but they didn't make the theory to be that. I always thought it was a fascinating and wise choice that Belson-Cohen had posed the theory of saying, okay, there are three elements. One of them is the motivated offender. And then they effectively say, that's not what we're talking about. Everybody else talks about it. Go look at what they have to say, right? We're going to talk about these other two that nobody talks about. And I think that was brilliant. But sort of like I was already committed to the corners that they'd thrown out the window. So I felt like to have my excuse to play in their swimming pool, I needed to say, okay, how can it make sense to focus on the individual? And so that led me to dig into a couple of theoretical avenues that the things had just been always had interested in me. I always thought that Matsa had great insights about kind of ambivalence of involvement in crime, simultaneously maintain images of self images of being conventional love their mothers and all good in the world, being patriotic, whatever. At the same time, let me tell you the stories about we were up to the running from the cops the other day. I got a lot of that from my experience of collecting data in the institution for delinquent kids because the treatment programs were all about having the kids come to terms with their misbehavior that got them there and to tell their stories in ways that concluded, I'm so sorry, I've done all this bad stuff. And they didn't get out until they'd done a sufficient amount of that to convince the adult world that they meant it. But clearly, there was a ton of ambivalence there, right? Because it wasn't hard to pick up in the corners, kids laughing about trading their exploits. Both things go on. So anyway, that was part of it. And, the, and I really felt the notion of situational motivation, I just thought was a really cool one. It was from a real nice paper by Pilyavon and Breyer. By the way, Irv Pilyavon was in social work at Wisconsin and isn't too well known in the field these days, but really was an incredibly smart guy. And we don't think of people in social work as being in criminology, but there's always been a real strong strain of concern about crime and, and social work programs. And Irv was a really interesting guy, a real mentor to Ross Matsueda, I know several other people in the field anyway. So it was fun to sort of point in his direction for that situation motivation. And I think that situational motivation idea just fits real well with all the rational choice sort of notions that when you look for motivation, partly you got to look, okay, what's going on in this situation? Make anybody think of, oh, well, maybe I'll break the law here because I could do this or that.
0: Yeah. So speaking of that, and you just touched on this a little bit, but we are hoping you can get into it a little bit more. In our episode with Dill, we really discussed Mm. theoretical assumptions or, you know, the foundations that theories are built on that typically dictate how the theory will handle, for example, as you just said, motivation. So like in control theories, they really assume that the motivation to commit crime is natural or inherent. And therefore, they're asking this question of why don't people commit crime instead of why do they? Cohen and Felson's routine activity theory falls under this camp. And therefore, they really don't talk about motivation a whole lot, other than just stating that motivated offenders are abound, they're everywhere, and brought forward this idea that you just mentioned of situational motivation. And so, can you explain a little bit more about what situational motivation is and discuss how it fits within these theoretical (coughs) assumptions?
2: Well, that's a great question. So, situational motivation is basically a notion that a hefty component of the motivation for a delinquent act comes from the situation. And the person wouldn't have that motivation unless they were in that situation. And as I pose my theory, I didn't take a strong position, a sort of weak position about it could affect darn near everybody. Certainly, if it's like armed robbery, there isn't that big a group that's going to be tempted by the opportunity. But for kind of mundane delinquent stuff, it's probably pretty darn big group who might be tempted by getting in on the fight with one set of friends against another or shoplifting or vandalizing or smoking pot or whatever. You know, it lead you to look at what is in this situation. And then within my theory, I tied it to, well, situations that involve being with other kids are more likely to have that because often what um, positive reward there is to get out of a delinquent act is basically those stories to tell with your friends that other people will laugh and pat you on the back and say, it wasn't that cool. And they could also have the tangible things of somebody watching, see that no one's coming and all that sort of stuff. So now, in a sense, situational motivation isn't enough. You know, that you would need something about, well, why is the person susceptible to this temptation? It really is an image of temptation. Of Crime comes from the temptation of being there where something's appealing. And I've sometimes thought this is a little silly, but I think there's something to it. That sometimes criminologists, in thinking about why do people do things that are against the rules they're not supposed to do, spend too much time thinking about you know all the junk in the TV shows about you know the born killers and all that, and too little time thinking about siblings in the backseat and a long car trip. You know, every set of parents is driven crazy because like leave your brother alone, leave your sister alone. Just knock it off. You've got a long ways to go. The kids can't do it, right? It's like, okay, put a space between you, you know, find some distraction. But it can be very tempting to do pretty pointless things that you're not supposed to do. And that happens to all of us. That's not the same as every crime. But I wonder how much misbehavior crime has those elements in it. And we don't really give them attention. That's kind of off on one edge of situational motivation, I think.
1: Well, I think we need to make a Netflix documentary about this, you know, to start <laughs> combating all the serial killer stuff. Because that's what people worry about on road trips, is like, oh, don't pick up the hitchhiker. But what have you seen a hitchhiker in the last 30 or 40 years?
2: Not much. Um, you know, I have to tell you when I got to Boulder in nineteen seventy-one, it was a standard mode of transportation there for a year or two. I'd right be lined with people like their thumbs out wanting to ride to campus or to the
0: Wow. Yeah, you don't see that anymore. <laughs>
2: nope. Didn't last too long, actually. And I think crime had a lot to do with it. There started to being this person, that person really did get hurt by some predator. You know, the odds were really low, but that's still dangerous. Even if awesome. you're low.
1: So another argument that you made in this paper that we thought was interesting was that we actually should move away from Felsen's adoption of Hershey social bonds for routine activity theory. Instead, you propose that we use Gibbs concept of social control to define guardians and handlers. First, can you tell us what we mean by guardians and handlers? And then tell us why you preferred Gibbs over Hershey.
2: Well, that wasn't all that wholesale and embrace of social control by Belson. One article where he sort of we could fit them together in this way, that might be cool. But it really was a social control kind of argument that kids will be restrained by, that was what he called handlers. What were the two terms, handlers and which? Capable guardians. Capable guardians, right. If you have a good bond with your parents, then they're sort of always there with you. just a very social control thing. And for my way of thinking, you know, that was nice enough, but what did it have to do with routine activity theory? Seemed to me not much. And, you know, Kims was an interesting guy. I don't think you see him cited much anymore. But he had like... A whole book on deviance I, don't know, deviance, I think, that reviewed every definition he could find of deviance, classified them, organized them. There were like 200 or something. And then he had one on social control that was kind of comparable. What do people mean by social control? And within that book, he, you know, kind of laid out all these ways it fit into lots of different theories and research and thinkers. And he said, you know, almost all of these are about how people in relationship or interaction with each other are trying to influence each other's behavior, maybe by rewards and punishments or influence saying things, stuff like that. But it's actually about interactions that have are directed about specific behavior of other people. And he got to Hershey's and said, well, this is an interesting enough theory, but you know, it really stands by itself as having nothing to do with all this other stuff across all of the social science. And in criminology, though, Hershey's theory was really prominent, still is, but boy, it sure was back then. And so that's what everybody used the term to mean, but it would still come up in this other respect as well because it matters in that other respect as well. And, you know, the social bond theory, I mean, and I think Gibbs' response was like, let's just not call that social control, just call it social bond theory. That's what it is. Nobody will get mixed up. So when it came to the part of my Theory. It was like, well, some of the reasons that the kinds of activities I'm pointing at ought to matter is because it's how much they expose you to other people coming and saying, knock that off, or singing and calling the cops, or whatever. And it was really more about that sort of theory. And it seemed to me that had a lot more to do with the, you know, the basic logic of routine activities. And indeed, I think it was right about the same time that the place manager idea came out. And I think we I slipped in a quick reference to that because Mark Felson, by the way, was a terrific help at commenting on that paper as I worked on it. And he's a very funny guy. So I'm using little side comments and And he told me about this work by John Eck, which came up with the place manager idea. And that was very much, you know, it's like people in the place whose job it is to, at least part of their job, is to make sure chaos doesn't reign. And would you would expect the person at the door at the pizza place is going to call the cops if people start a big fight. And this was just broadening, I thought, yeah, stuff like that, the kind of activities that minimize the chances, situations where that stuff isn't going around. Like, I think to try to quote myself loosely, there was a line in the paper that was something like, even if you don't love your parents, it's probably going to be more convenient to smoke pot when they're not around. Like, you don't really need much of a social bond to have reason to think, I'm going to pick this time, not that time. Just because who needs the aggravation or it would just seem stupid to do it now. But all those times hanging out with friends, just doing nothing in particular, it's much easier to think, well, somebody had a joint. Oh, okay, let's go ahead.
1: Okay. Before we start getting to your findings, I promise we will, right after this question, we want to discuss this idea of unstructured socializing or unstructured activities. A lot of people have probably heard the phrase idle hands or the devil's workshop. Yeah, right. And so, in other words, there's this idea that kids who engage in extracurricular activities like school clubs, sports, they don't have time to engage in delinquency. However, one of the things that you highlight in your paper is that this may not be 100% accurate, right? Or it's not absolute. Has the research supported this notion that kids who engage in structured activities just don't engage in delinquency?
2: Not so much. And in fact, this was something I remember Dell talking about back when I was still working in Boulder. And, you know, and Hershey had a section of his book, it was the bond of involvement, which he took the radical step of saying, This is part of my theory and it's wrong, was basically that. You know, if you aren't very busy, you'll get in more trouble. And I remember Dell telling me, and I cannot remember like he was pointing to his specific study that for the life of me, I'm not sure I ever saw. Saying, you know, it just doesn't take enough time to get into trouble for that ever to work. If kids are free just a little bit at the time, that's plenty to engage in all sorts of stuff. So that's always kind of been part of my framework that, like that initial study, we looked at all, you know, activities separately. And you could particularly see that some of them that had zero order correlations to delinquency, but not The relationships went away when you looked at them all together, tended to be of that sort than the ones like going to church more often or being involved in clubs. Those relationships really are weak and inconsistent and really more accounted for when by just a little bit of correlation with the other ones that do matter, which is really how much time you're doing nothing with other people.
0: Yeah. One of our professors, Kyle Thomas, whenever yeah. he teaches theory, he's always like, crime <laughs> takes no time. What do you mean? Like, it's <laughs> not like it's that hard. You just need a small amount of time. Right. All right. Can you then walk us through your findings in this paper regarding okay. uh, unstructured best- activities engagement and engagement in delinquency?
2: Sure. Best I can remember anyway. There are a few things trying to do with, in the paper. One was to pin down Well, first, there was some relationship of activities and that it was this particular set of activities, not others. So the main analyses first were at that level of the list of however many items we had, which was, I don't know, 15 or something in that ballpark. And showing that the relationships were pretty darn consistent. And we had several different deviant evaders, call them the drinking, delinquency, pot use, Dangerous driving, which was sort of like getting in accidents driving and so on. And the activities that we classified as unstructured socializing were related almost all the time. And other ones were just very sporadically and not in a way that give you much faith. I sort of like doing analyses in that way where you have sort of some internal replication going on. So rather than leaving it to other people to find out which of your findings don't really have much consistency to them, you show the world yourself to start with. Yeah, these things look kind of iffy and those look more opaque. Another piece of the study, you know, one thing I hope is clear is that I tried not to present this as a priority. You know, there was a fair amount of research already. And I've been looking at these findings for a long time before I wrote this paper. So I really did not want to put across, I had this smart idea and let's see if I was right, but it still wanted to contribute more than was there before. So the second piece of the sites. Checking that out was also just to have a stronger research design. We had the longitudinal part, the monitoring of the future from high school, senior year forward to about 828, I think it was, so that we could do within-person analyses, which were not that common at that point. But I really liked the idea of being able to, we're ruling out stable individual differences. We're only talking about in the years people did more hanging out, did they get into more delinquency. So I think that was an important feature of the contribution. And then the second set of analyses we're looking at is the rate at which people participate in those activities explain other important stuff about crime, which always strikes me is a lot of the reason we want theories, not just say, yay, the variable in the theory, you know, is related, pat yourself on the back, but it's like, okay, does it help you make sense of the whole pattern of stuff we think we know about crime? So particularly interested in the age differences, which has proved a pretty hard thing to explain. And we looked at gender. Again, I mean, God, if there's anything we know about crime and delinquency, it's the gender difference. And race and class, a little Partly, the race differences aren't that big in that sample, or most others on self-report delinquency. And the race differences, and what race differences there are, this is probably not a particularly big part of the explanation. If anything, You know, other research has come later, and we saw it in that original data, was if anything, white and a little bit wealthier kids do more running around. You know, they have the resources to do it. They're more likely to have cars and money and so on. This isn't a theory of everything, and probably it's not going to be the one that explains that. But uh, it did account for a pretty good chunk of the age differences and the gender differences. So,
1: Okay, we want to spend the last bit of time that we have left Uh, asking you to reflect back on your career a little bit and on the field. And, you know, we've talked to you about your, I mean, we just finished talking about your 1996 piece, which is, in our opinion, a must read. Do you have any other accomplishments that you are most proud of, either as a researcher or as a professor?
2: Yeah, it is very satisfying to have some papers that get a real good response. And I try to remember how much that meant to me. You know, what people who I respected said, that's good stuff. So that kind of led me to feel like, you know, once I'd gotten some accomplishment there, I knew I, I did this. And that was good. And, you know, writing more papers is good. I like doing that and having I mean, continuing that. But really, I was in the long run more interested in helping my students get to that point themselves, to have that first success, to get the skills they need to really accomplish things. So that's Probably the thing I'm most proud of. And, you know, we have real good grad students at Penn State. I had a, just a couple of few students at Nebraska and really enjoyed working with them. But at Penn State, there are more students in there in a program that was really had the resources to help them get ahead. So probably my favorite thing, and I put it in my little bio thing for the Sutherland Award, was that a whole bunch of my students have won the Gene Cart Paper Award and a couple of one other kind of dissertation awards. And then just that they they all do well, right? Many are in good criminology programs. Some of them are in totally different sorts of things and have done well in research institutes or state agencies or more teaching-oriented schools. That's great, too. But the whole business of being a mentor and getting to know people well and being an important part of their lives and having them end up feeling like you're on their side and that they can do this and come out with a career. That's my favorite part of things, really. And the other one I point to is probably being an editor. I really like being an editor. It's the sort of job that when I'm done, I was really glad to be done, too, because it's a whole lot of work that's just relentless and keeps going. But Charles Tittle had, was editor, I don't know, 10 years before us or whatever. But I had been real active in reviewing for him and knew him pretty well from the meetings and all. Came up and said something to me which i sort of already knew but a whole lot when he said it which was the most important part of the job is what you do for the papers you reject and most of them are going to be published someplace and the field will be so much better if they get good feedback along the way and the the researchers the authors are going to be better if they get the kind of feedback that really helps improve their skills and is encouraging not discouraging and so on. And I love that image of the journal publication process, reviews and acceptances and rejections is not really about that journal, is about peer review is this massive self-help thing that we're all doing to turn the field into a better field as it goes along. So I really liked approaching the editorship from that kind of perspective. That were at the heart of this thing. I enjoyed it a bunch from that. I mean, it was wild being in sort of in the middle of, I never heard of this stuff, where did this come from? Learning about something that in a few years turns out to be a neat new thing that a lot of people pick up. It's just cool. And the other part that's coolest about it was people like Kyle, who was, we published his first paper when he was that far through grad school. And like, who is this guy? Well, he did really good work and i got you know know them from early in the queue and occasionally you know there'd be assistant professors that were just doing such a good job at reviewing we think well let's put them on the editorial board they will do their career a lot of good at this point and they're doing that much work we don't why pick famous person x put them on the editorial board yeah they got all the credit and not the time so anyway so that was a really cool experience
0: Absolutely. And just, I mean, it sounds like editors really have this ability to kind of shape, you know, the discipline and what what is kind of, you know, the up and coming things and what's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: You know, it's funny. There's a sense in which you have a lot less control than you think. I've read multiple people well-known in various fields saying they came into the job thinking they're really going to shape the field in the sense of they'll publish a lot more of this kind of work they think is great and not that kind of work that they think is boring. And finding, not really, you know, (laughs) there's this huge pool of fantastic work you wasn't getting in the journal before. But I think there's a lot of shaping that's in the longer term sort of thing of encouragement. And probably some of the papers that I think played the biggest role were ones that were pretty innovative and kind of weird. And well-known people in the field might say, that's not the way you do that. But, you know, one or two others reviewers who would say, wow, I never thought of that. And you think, well, it's better for the field, even if this isn't in its final form. And, you know, just to kind of put it out there for a lot of, you know, innovation is cool.
0: So related to that question, we want to know what do you consider to be like the greatest lesson that you've learned throughout your career?
2: Oh, wow. Probably that. It's worth taking the time to do the best job you can do on what you're working on. I mean, which is not to say you still have to deal with the realities of life. Nobody's going to give you tenure for that paper that will be the best paper in the world when you write it 10 years from now. But taking the time to do work that you feel is really worthwhile, and do a really good job on it, is the way you do the work that other people notice and that makes a difference. Not every paper is going to be that substantial. Some papers do need to get written that aren't that ambitious. But everybody knows and there's a trend in the field for, for people to publish a seemingly weekly basis sometimes. And well, I never did anything that was worth a darn. That I was, it didn't take me a lot more time than that. And I'm sure there are people smarter than me out there. But I don't think that much smarter that they can produce that much good work in and, and that kind of, of quantity. So, yeah, probably that. Yeah. I mean, it takes me two
1: weeks to just even get an outline together for a paper (laughs) and making sure that I've read
2: what I need to read. Right. Right. You know, and that's the stage where, in a sense, you're doing the biggest thinking. Hopefully, if you get the outline sorted out really well, then the rest of it's going to be smoother.
1: So, you wrote this chapter, and I know Jen loves this (laughs) chapter, that you put in the title that we should... Build Criminology by Stealing from Our Friends. We want to start asking you about your thoughts on the state of the field of criminology and whether you think we've been doing this effectively and
2: kind of where we currently stand and get your thoughts on that. Yeah, that was a fun paper. I actually did that for a session on integration Thornberry or somebody put together at ASC in San Diego way back They had written the thing and I thought, okay, that was kind of fun. What am I going to do with it? I can't remember who suggested, but you know, the idea of having it in the criminologist was where it appeared in the first place, because there's really just kind of an admonition to each other. It'll be cool if, you know, you're not the criminologist, but you're good at something else too. So you can bring us what they know. And you can also tell them about what we know. I really do believe that, as strongly as ever. And it's actually a little bit unhealthy if you only know what criminologists know about whatever your topic is. Because it can be a pretty funny little slice of whatever that field might be. And geez, there's, it's hard to think of anything in the social sciences that doesn't have potential to be applied to understanding crime. So it's hard to know what specific directions are going to be best. Probably the sneaky and simple answer is to say the ones I'm not going to think of because I haven't seen them lately right? And I never really thought about them. But I see a lot going on with geographers that like macro level area oriented crime stuff is totally different than it was 10 or 15 years ago, kind of reached a culmination, you know, with the Chicago study of those massive data collection really did a great job at integrating survey work and demographic information and crime rates. But now there's all that stuff about Integrating stuff at multiple geographic scales and, and bringing de- big data stuff into the picture that seems, you know, really interesting and has a lot of potential. You know, a lot of my work in the last decade is pretty network-based about its friendship networks. I think there's a lot of room still to interesting things to be done with that. Now that I've kind of gotten pretty good at working with network data. Like virtually all of that work is asking kids who the friends are. And then that's the network. And everything about the network is who are your friends. But people have a lot of different relationships with each other. And there's a little bit of work that gets into other kinds of relationships, like who do you ask for advice? Who do you dislike? Who boys whom? Things like that. I think a lot there's a lot of neat stuff that can be done with networks in those ways. Networks that have nothing to do with links between people like. The neat stuff, Karina graph here, has a good at this intersection of things with, like commuting networks with crime rates. So, you know, what neighborhoods are people coming from and going to throughout the day? And, you know, gives you just such a wildly different view of what spatial stuff matters for crime. I do think we particularly need people to actually get good at stuff in other fields good enough to work with really good collaborators in this fields, it isn't like you need to be so good that you know, don't necessarily need to quite reach the Rob Samson level of publishing in the very best journals of fields that huh who knows you know, about that sort of stuff. But if you're at the level of you just read a paper or two in this other field, and so you can bring in some nice ideas, that's great. But if you're going to do big complicated work, you probably actually need to know it more deeply and even better if you have collaborators, that's their whole thing. And you can actually talk to them and understand what they're doing, if not do what they're doing. I think that's where you really get the payoff of doing work that we aren't quite imagining yet.
0: Yeah, I love this idea. In my work, I try and be super interdisciplinary. I'm a sociologist. I have a background in psychology And so I really like trying to bridge these ideas and pull from other areas and public health and epidemiology. And so I know you're stealing from our friends piece there was on my comps list and I used it on my comps. And yeah, it's a really cool idea as far as how to go about integration. All right. Those are like our core questions for you. Do you have anything else you'd like to mention or add before we wrap up?
2: One little thing i just throw in is we criminologists have had this long run, ridiculous amount of luck. Our job market has been excellent since I stumbled into the field myself. And that I suppose that probably can't last forever. But it is a rare privilege that, you know, virtually everybody getting a Ph.D. in our field can go on to a real good job that makes use of what they learned. Uh, whether it's a professor, a researcher, a planner at an agency, or whatever. So that's just sort of a wonderful part of having picked this view.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Wayne. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. You're writing a paper for your Sutherland Award, right? Yeah. There's papers for that. Do you know when that will be coming out?
2: Well, in a deep sense, no, because it yet exists in the form it has to go in only a few months. sometime during the coming year.
0: All right, cool. We'll keep an eye out for that. And if people want to reach out to you, ask you any questions, where can they get a hold of you? Is email best?
2: Yeah, email would be best. If they just Google Penn State and look down the faculty list to get to the emeritus faculty, because I'm retired now, they'll find it there and it'd be great to hear from them. And thanks so much for asking me to do this. And I really appreciate the opportunity and I really appreciate you doing this for The field.
0: Yeah, thank Absolutely. you.
2: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Hey, thanks for listening.
1: Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com.
0: You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T H E C R I M. A C A D E M Y.
1: Or email us at the at gmail.com.
0: See you See you next time.
1: time.